Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism and media. I'm David Uberti, a staff writer for the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, we're offering you a Trump-free episode. So sit back, relax, and have some journalistic self-healing. First up, we're talking about the podcast boom, specifically Serial and its latest offshoot, S-Town, which was launched this week. And then I'm having an interview with Ernst Fout. He is the publisher of a Dutch startup called De Correspondent, which is making a very interesting play in the American market over the next year or so. We will be talking to them about member-funded journalism and how to regain public trust of media. Joining me on the pod today is CGR senior editor Christy Chisholm. Christy, welcome back to the show. Hello, friends. And also Delacorte fellow Pete Vernon. Pete, welcome back. Good to be here. We wanted to start with a topic dear to my heart, podcasts, specifically podcasts by Serial and This American Life. There's a new project that they have just put out this week by the name of S-Town. It's a seven-part series, all released this week. We wanted to talk a little bit about that show and how the podcasting landscape has changed since its predecessor, Serial, came out in 2014. So starting with S-Town, Pete, you binged on this yesterday. Let's just start off with the basics. How does it end? Well, after... No, we shouldn't do that. (laughs) Uh, So this is... It's interesting because it's been marketed in a teaser that came out a couple weeks ago as sort of a maybe a murder mystery, maybe a treasure hunt. And it is both those things in part, but neither of those is really a good description of what S-Town is. It's more than any sort of traditional true crime story. It's like a novel. It is an exploration of a town and a county in Alabama. It's Woodstock, Alabama, which is the titular shit town that the podcast takes its name from. And basically, This American Life producer Brian Reed got an email from a very brilliant, eccentric, interesting guy down in Alabama who told him he he knew something about a murder. And he thought that someone from outside should come investigate because no one in this town was going to talk about it. So Brian Reed goes down there and enters into this different world than anything he has ever seen before. And we as an audience follow him into that journey and into really an exploration of the life of this guy, John B. McElmore. So from that description, I mean, I haven't listened to the show yet, but it sounds like a little bit of a return to the original first season of Serial, where Sarah Koenig was trying to solve a murder mystery. Season two, she tried to parse the very interesting but weird case of Bo Bergdahl. In some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. It's definitely not a simple... Let's follow this case that has not gotten enough attention and bring some light to it and ask some questions about it. That that seems like it's where the idea started. But at the end of the second episode, the show takes a sharp left turn and we really end up doing something completely different than what it sounded like the show was going to do at first. Again, the, the phrase that keeps getting used in a lot of the reviews that I used in a review that's up at CJR now is Southern Gothic. And really, more than Serial Season 1, the parallels, the illusions that are drawn in this story are to Faulkner, to, in some ways, Edgar Allan Poe, to Shirley Jackson, some of her short stories. Uh, It is unlike anything else I've listened to on a podcast before, and I enjoyed it. I, I loved the fact that my job yesterday was to walk around and sit at my desk listening to a podcast for seven hours. But just as a a story on its own, I really enjoyed it. Thought it was incredibly well done. 
took them a ton of time. This story started in the end of 2012 was when the first email was received. So they obviously put a ton of work into it, and it shows. It came out, I think, really well. I think it's really interesting that they release them all at once. It is kind of like a auditory novella, <laughs> maybe. But that's something that I haven't really seen in podcasts before. You guys should correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't. I haven't really seen like multi-part productions all being released at the same time, like the way we get Netflix now. It definitely seems kind of like a Netflix model almost, but for podcasts, which is interesting. And I'm wondering if that's why they also didn't do it under Serial's name. Maybe you guys have some insight on that that I don't have, but like its own separate beast because season one, two, and then now this, they all have very different feels to them. And in a way, this does kind of go back to the roots of the original of season one of Serial, just in that it's a little more scintillating, the idea like maybe there's a murder, maybe there isn't, like what's, you know, whatever, the kind of, that kind of mystery. I've only listened to the first episode and I'm like, I, I, I'm in, <laughs> like I, I want more. I haven't, didn't have seven hours yet today to do that. You mean you have a real job? <laughs> well, you have a real job too, but yesterday your real job was listening to... That's so I have a great. better job. Yes, you have a higher quality of life job. Anyway, I am wondering why they didn't they release it under its own name. And if this is kind of a, it seems like a standalone then. I mean, they're calling this podcast S-Town. They're not going to do season two with that, right? Right. There is actually a serial season three that's in the works. Sarah Koenig mentioned that during one of the promos. But the the sort of binging aspect of it is an interesting twist. And I think it sort of signals the maturation in some ways of the podcast market, the availability of podcasts and how it's changed. So I just wanted to throw some numbers out there for all of our listeners. So in 2013, 12% of Americans had listened to a podcast in the past month. That's according to Edison Research. As of last year, that number was up to 21% of Americans. And among people who have ever listened to a podcast, 36% of them have done so in the past month. Obviously, most of those people are coming on mobile, you know, through their iTunes app, through Stitcher, through Overcast, and what have you. And so, most of them are young, right? A lot of them, a lot of them are young. I don't, I don't have demographic numbers on hand, but it, it, I would imagine they certainly skew younger than, say, cable news, uh, for example. And since the original Serial came out, Serial was certainly a smashing success in 2014. Podcasts have been around for a long time, but I think that really brought them to the fore in the way that they hadn't been uh, before that. There have been a lot of expansions, CGR included, from places such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today. Podcasting companies have been started. And it's really emerged as a growth industry within the broader media as, as a lot of places struggle to make digital advertising into a more sustainable business. Pete, you're a fiend as I am. Do you see any like broad dials of podcasting that are emerging and, and what their strengths and weaknesses are as vessels for journalism? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two different buckets that podcasts can fall into, right? There's the sort of thing we're doing now, the GabFest. Based on the political GabFest from Slate? Sure, something like that. Something like what you get almost at The Daily, The New York Times, or Pod Save America. Some of the ones that we have grown used to and enjoy and get to know the hosts, and it feels like you know sitting down with your friends once a week or a couple times a week. But there's also the sort of work that S-Town and Serial have done, the narrative, long form, or shorter form at times, storytelling that goes into reporting and tells a single story or a couple stories on a similar topic. And I think for journalism, both are important. 
certainly one is much more difficult than the other. We can pop down here for an hour a week and right. have our conversation that hopefully our listeners find interesting. But to invest the time and resources into something like S-Town or what This American Life does each week right. really requires some institutional backing and some commitment from professional audio reporters. I think the long-form reported podcasts definitely veer toward more of the audio, the traditional audio players such as NPR, you know, This American Life, PRX, uh, WNYC has... They launched a, a drive to raise $15 million for a podcast wing in 2015, whereas a lot of the digital players, a lot of newspapers or digitally native publications that are trying to make some headway in the podcasting world, they, they gravitate more toward the GabFest-style podcast, which is what we're doing here. I, I like to uh, refer to it in many cases as long-form punditry. <laughs> um, luckily, though, we... Which we, one of us is Sean Hannity? Uh, I, uh, I will not be raising my no, hand for that one. No, not it. I think what you're seeing is some of the infrastructure for that sort of long-form reporting being built up from organizations like Gimlet or Panoply that are making it easier for either outsiders, newcomers, or even legacy media companies to get involved in long-form reported pieces. Uh, we're starting to see it at ESPN, which will soon be launching 30 for 30 documentaries, audio documentaries. Stoked for that. Yeah. The video documentaries that they've been doing are incredible. They just won their first Academy Award for OJ Made in America. And I'm excited for what they do in the audio front. And I hope others like the Washington Post, the New York Times, places that have these resources get into that because I would love to see some of the New York Times' long-form reporting being put out as audio. Sometimes audio is the best medium for these stories, or certainly it offers something different than print or even video. One of the things I've been interested in watching, specifically with the New York Times and the Washington Post as they venture in this, is how their style of detached, quote-unquote, objective journalism translates to the podcast format. Serial is a good example of this where Sarah Koenig really takes you on the journey. She's conversational. She's likable. And when you go to shows such as the Political Guy Fast by Slate or Pod Save America, you were gravitating toward those because of people's personalities. As you said, Pete, they're sort of your friends. They, they make jokes. It's uh, pretty R-rated at times, but really fun to listen to. And it doesn't seem to be a natural fit for the times in particular. They're sort of detached style. So I've been very curious to see how, you know, Michael Barbaro does the Daily, which is their daily podcast, their news podcast. And I think so far it's been a really nice and slickly produced show. But I'm just curious to see how they will expand to that as they build out their team a little bit more. It reminds me of the gradual evolution the newspapers had online, too, and how it feel like we're still getting our sea legs a little bit. I mean, a lot of these larger institutions and smaller institutions that haven't been part of radio in the past and, like, are now getting into podcasts reminds me of when we all kind of realized that we needed to be online, not just our content needs to be online, but journalists need to have a quote-unquote, you know, hashtag brand and have their own social media accounts, be tweeting stuff and whatever. How personal can you be? How kind of conversational can you be? And still, if it's under an account that's associated with your work, how do you make sure you're not crossing any weird boundaries or whatever? And I feel like we've kind of gotten the hang of it a bit more. <laughs> Some people really know what they're doing. <laughs> and, and most of us, I think, generally know what we're doing more than we did before. But I think that a lot of ways podcasting is still kind of in that terrain. You're getting journalists who are wanting to get into this medium. I mean, I think some people do it really, really well. But I think it is a question that we're asking ourselves. How conversational can we be? How personable can we be? Where's the boundary? And like, what's our role on this platform? 
you mentioned the internet, the shift to digital that legacy media companies underwent, and what that shift gave them was new audiences. And podcasts also seem to be doing that. If you look at the average age of cable news viewers and newspaper readers, you're talking about, if not your parents, your grandparents. 50 Uh, or 60 or 70 year olds. Right. And the average age of podcasts, I don't have the numbers, but I'm assuming that it is much, much younger. Um, John Lovett, who is one of the hosts of Pod Save America, was on CNN last Sunday on Brian Stelter's show. And Stelter asked him why they were doing a podcast, why they thought that was a place where they could have an impact. Obviously, they are former Obama staffers who are trying to present a very partisan, very entertaining take on the news that leads to activism. And Stelter asked why podcasts. And he said, because you speak in a dead language, talking about cable news. Young people are just not sitting down at 6.30 p.m. to watch the networks and at 9 p.m. to watch Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. Young people just aren't doing that. They're out listening to podcasts in their cars, on the subway, making dinner, whatever. They're not watching TV, and they're certainly not buying newspapers. Or if you're a true nerd like (laughs) me while you're at the gym. I can't tell if I'm being efficient or if I'm just being a geek. Maybe both, Dave. Just just going hard. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Just gets me jacked. uh, But yeah. I mean, you bring up a good point with the Lovett thing. And and the reason I used the term long-term punditry earlier on, I I think that holds true. And, you know, if you hear people who speak on cable TV, they have these sort of very polished sound bites that typically fit into one of like five different things that they could be saying. You could pretty much guess what someone's going to say in a cable news program. The format is very formulaic. Whereas with podcasting, you hear the same exact people talk. You can actually hear them expand upon their thoughts, their thought processes. You could actually, you know, go through an argument with them from start to finish, which I think is really lacking on on TV in particular, but also in more sort of formulaic writing, such as newspapers, for example. And, you know, I think some other podcasters, maybe the folks at Vox uh, have mentioned this, which is that it, it sort of reminds me of the early stages of blogging where it was, it was sort of a distinct style within journalism. You were having a conversation with your readers. It wasn't the voice from God. You were saying one thing on one day. You could walk through your argument. Here's why I think this. Here's the evidence to back that up. Then the next show, you can come back and say, hey, I screwed up last time. This is what I've learned since then. And this is what you can gain from that. So I think that is very valuable. In addition to the fact that, you know, as we just said, it is a very mobile medium, maybe the most mobile medium, not only because you can get it through your phone, but you could actually listen to podcasts while you're doing other things. Right. It's Uh, an augmented mm -hmm. reality as opposed to virtual reality or sitting down to watch a TV, even sitting on your computer. I also think that idea of having people, whether it's two people or four people who are very smart, talking about a topic they know well over a long period of time just leads to better conversations and better information than something you'd get in a televised interview. Barack Obama used to talk about this when he would say why he didn't do television interviews. And he said, because I'll sit there for 30 minutes, you'll cut it down to six minutes, and it'll end up being this boring, predictable interview that doesn't really say much, and I don't get to actually talk through my ideas. Whereas podcasts allow two people to sit down, talk through issues, explain themselves. And I just think that people have responded to that. The takeaway from that is that we are very smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah pat, patting myself on the back very right smart, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I wanted to bring up the other parallel. You know, you, you compared it, Christy, to the, the switch from print to digital in many ways when newspapers had to make the shift, magazines had to make the shift. And the big question is monetizing that. And the early numbers with podcasts shows that there's still a lot of questions surrounding how media companies will actually make money off this. The Wall Street Journal reported last year 
that collective podcast advertising totaled something like $35 million, which is just a blip on the radar compared to, say, TV or even newspapers. So you do have a lot of experimentation on how to turn this into new revenue streams for companies. To draw one example, Pod Save America, they claim to get about 800,000 downloads per episode of the show. But that doesn't really tell you exactly how many people listen to it, whether they're fast forwarding through the ads. You can't really target people through those advertisements. So there are some downsides when it comes to evaluating metrics and, and using those metrics to you know converse and approach advertisers to say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is exactly the people who are listening to my show. And this is how you can target them on a very sort of individualized, specific basis. But don't you think well, it's a market that advertisers can't reach through traditional media? Young people, 25-year-olds like yourself, Dave, aren't watching <laughs> the nightly news. Most 25-year-olds, aside from the media connoisseur that you are, not sitting down <laughs> with a physical newspaper and seeing a full-page right. ad there. Right. Isn't that an advantage monetarily? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I turn on the nightly news and I immediately see an ad for Cialis and turn it off. So I, I really <laughs> can't deal with that aspect of network television. But, you know, I think to your point, you are right that some of the products that have chosen to advertise on podcasts are sort of right in my wheelhouse, me being a young millennial professional. I just ordered my first Blue Apron order last week, and I got a discount code through Slate Money, which was a 50% off code for me, which is great. It was awesome. There's MeUndies, there's Casper Mattresses, there's Squarespace, there's MailChimp. I love MeUndies. That's true. I actually yeah, do. Yeah, we're all right in there, like 20 to mid-30s age range, right? Like right. We are the target audience, and these are all products that actually we would probably use. And I w- I'll let you know how my Harry's razors turn out. <laughs> right. We, we will have a forthcoming show on the podcast where we just use all of the coupon codes for various podcast products and explain exactly how much money we've saved and, and whether you should actually go out and, and get Harry's razors. Yeah, that isn't a joke. We're actually doing that. <laughs> I just wanted to go back to the idea of monetizing podcasts and you know what kind of value it brings to a news organization. I think that it does go beyond direct advertising, too. I mean, I think that that's something that's there. Obviously, like I assume that as more people start listening to podcasts and more people start sponsoring episodes and whatever, more advertising dollars are going to come in. But beyond that, if you're taking a large news organization or any news organization that has its own kind of separate, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not content, but its own... You know, sensibility. Sensibilities, yes. Its own sensibility. But it's only tangible something. It already exists in some form, right? And they're adding this new platform, medium, whatever, wing onto it, if you will. You know, you take the New York Times and you add podcasts. It's a way to draw people in to the other product, too, right? It's different if you have a podcast that's a standalone. That's a different kind of question, like how to monetize that, how to make it, whatever. But you take a large organization and it takes very few resources, you know, in terms of money to produce a podcast, especially for an organization of that size. And it's just a way of engaging people who might then decide to get a digital subscription or or whatever. It's just, it helps your brand, certainly. Yeah. You mentioned the New York Times. I mean, there's the Daily, which is they'll pick one of their main stories and talk about it and then give you the news of the day. And it's well done, but it still feels like the New York Times. But they also have a podcast called Still Processing with Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham that brings culture reporting to podcast listeners in a way that I don't think people would usually associate with the New York Times. And if you get people who are listening to that podcast who might not usually be readers of the New York Times or might not be readers of the A section of the New York Times that are hearing smart people talk about culture in a way that's different, 
that could be a way to bring readers, as Christy was saying, to the times, and you are reaching new audiences in that sense. Right. It helps you become a vertically integrated hype machine, as I like to say. Oh, vertically integrated hype machine. Vertically, V-I-H-M, vim. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wrapping up, before we take off here, before we end this segment here, I just want to join in with my fellow podcasters in Try a Podcast Month under the hashtag Tripod. I want to go around to each of you guys. What are your suggestions that you, you would give to our listeners out there for what podcast they should try? Well, my favorite is not off the beaten path, but I've been listening to it, I realized today, for 10 years now, which is just crazy. But Radiolab has a very special place in my heart. That's my show. That's my jam. I, 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 yeah, I still clearly remember episodes that I heard for the first time in 2007 and continue to go back to that have elicited imagery in my imagination that I have like clung onto for the last decade. It's hard to even wrap my head around the fact that I've been doing one thing consistently for 10 years or what anyway, but Radiolab is one of them. I love Radiolab, and I know that there are a number of people who love podcasts who say that they've just, for whatever reason, not listened to that one. So even though it's very well known, I would say... It's, you know, if you haven't listened to it yet, you absolutely should. I could wax poetic about it for longer than you'd like me to. So I'll stop there. But Radio Lab, man. Pete? I don't think I can do just one. I, Give me I one. I feel like you can't. Give me one. No, you can't talk about podcasts without mentioning, like, the original kind of This American Life, WTF with Mark Marin, Fresh Air, Tracy Gross. Like, you need to talk about those as setting the table. And then there's whether it's sports, things like Pardon My Take, which are a great way to start Monday morning. There's amazing culture stuff, like I mentioned, Still Processing or Another Round from BuzzFeed. And then I guess if I have to pick one, now that I've named a bunch of others, this week it's S-Town. I just, I think this is something that is pretty new in terms of its delivery in seven episodes. It is a ambitious and well done, you know, it's not perfect. There's certainly parts that are a little baggy or discursive, but it's really, really well done. And I would definitely recommend checking it out over the weekend, sit down for a few hours at a time, get into the second episode, and I think you'll be hooked. I can add one more also to my list. So this one I actually could use listeners' help on, potentially, if anyone knows what I'm talking about, because this is a weird situation, but one of my favorite podcasts I've ever listened to, I can't remember the name of it, which is Must terrible. have been great. It was, it was excellent, but it was like, it was very small. Like, it was just like a couple of guys putting this thing out, and the way that I found it, this is a true story, a little embarrassing, but a true story, which is that... I had been on OkCupid at the time, and one of the guys I was talking to was one of the guys in the podcast, and he had put up a picture of, like, like the picture of, like, him and the podcast and the name of the podcast, like, yeah, I'm a podcast, whatever. And I was like, all right, well, so before I even consider this, I'm obviously going <laughs> to listen, right? And it was something about love, love and something, something is love, like, whatever. The whole premise of the podcast, and it, I'm telling you, it was geniusly put together. It was so interesting. But it was about this guy, the guy who was on OkCupid, and his quest to find a date and find love and be cooler. And he had another male friend who, like, had a girlfriend and was considered cool or whatever, who was guiding him through the ways of becoming, like, kind of serving as his (laughs) spirit guide in this, like, quest to, like, find love. Good God. And, yeah, no, but it was so funny. It was so well done. There were, I don't know. So did you date him? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't date him. <laughs> we never went out, which is why I don't remember the name of the episode or right. the podcast. But anyway, 
I've tried to reference it before to people when we talked about kind of doing podcasts on a very low budget and what makes something interesting, what draws people in. I wanted to reference it before, but I can't remember the goddamn name. So if anyone is listening to this right now, if that guy from OkCupid is listening or whoever, is, whoever anyone knows what I'm talking about, if anyone has heard about this, Please email us, tell us the name so that I can do it justice and give these people the credit that they deserve because it was really brilliantly done. <laughs> we look forward to next week's podcast on Christie's adventures on OKCupid. Okay this is the fourth <laughs> season of Serial right now. <laughs> I'm not on OKCupid. Okay tweet, tweet us the answer at kickercjr or email us at thekicker at cjr.org. Wait, Dave, what are your, what's your recommendation? What's your one? Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. Yes, good He's answer. An independent podcaster, just a guy who does it out. I think he lives in Oregon. He just dissects in minute detail military and political history from different eras throughout human history. It's just how wars or various nation states have really shaped the course of human events. Dan really goes into it. What's uh, your favorite topic? World War One. He did four or five parts, five hours apiece. It's a really incredible show. would recommend it to anyone who loves history. And this guy has just nailed the form unlike anyone else that I've ever listened to. Joining me on the pod today is Ernst Fout. He's a publisher and co-founder of a Dutch startup called De Correspondent. It's a news organization that was founded a few years back and planning to make a United States expansion over the next year or so. Ernst, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. So I want to get into U.S. expansion. It has a lot of people in my corner of the world pretty excited about what you're trying to do. But I'm curious first to just start telling me a little bit about what drove you to start this company, what the underlying philosophy of it was, and how you actually got it off the ground in the Netherlands. Sure. So uh, I started this company together with three other guys, uh, designer, developer, and uh, our editor-in-chief, Rob Weinberg. And uh, he wrote a 10-point manifesto outlining uh, our ideas about journalism. And the most important point is that we don't want to cover the news necessarily. We rather cover structural developments because news is always about the exception and never about the rule. So if you follow the news, you know exactly how the world doesn't work, basically, sure. because you only get the incidents and the exceptions. Right. There's plenty of that nowadays. Right. So we wanted to be like a, a daily antidote to the news grind. That's how it started. And we wanted to be ad-free. So we could only focus on the needs of our readers instead of advertisers' needs. So we don't have to start a career section just for advertisers' sure. sake, for example. And we figured if we want to do this, we have to know whether people are actually people actually want a daily antidote to the news grant. So we started a crowdfunding campaign. And uh, we said if 15,000 people will give us 60 euros or more, then we have enough to get this thing started for a year. And we announced that on a Dutch television show called As the World Turns, which is not a soap opera in the Netherlands. <laughs> and uh, to our astonishment, after 24 hours, we reached half of our goal. And after eight days, we had our complete goal. And end of the month, uh, we had 20,000 people joining us. Uh, so we launched, and uh, we've been growing steadily to uh, almost 60,000 members now. And um, uh, one of the things we started doing is that we see our readers as contributing, contributing experts. So... Everyone knows something about a specific topic either through their job or study or life experience. And we feel it's a responsibility of journalists to get people to share that knowledge because it leads to more sources and better informed journalism. 
Right. So, so we work together with them, and we have an active community now. So you have a membership model. You have more than what you just said, fifty to 60,000 members at the moment. 56,000. 56,000 yeah. members. How does that differ in your mind, you know, in a broad sense, from a subscription-based model? So a subscription-based model has the idea that, it, that as, a, as a reader, you're just, a, just, just consuming. Whereas we, with a membership, we believe it's a two-way thing. So our journalists are conversation leaders, basically. They share their story ideas, and then they tell our audience, if you know anything about this topic, let me know. Um, for example, uh, recently a correspondent music industry started, and he wrote a call out saying, I'm going to research the power of music publishers. Music publishers aren't that well known by the general audience, but they have a very big influence. If you're working in the music industry, let me know if you have any specific insight. And then after writing this call out, a lot of people from the music industry started giving him advice. Normally, uh, you wouldn't have got this knowledge. You maybe check your Rolodex, call a few sources in the music industry, whereas we say uh, we have uh, 56,000 members together, they know more than us, so let's just ask them for, for, their, for their sources, for their experience. And this two-way journalism, interactive journalism, where you're a member, an active member, leads to better informed stories, we believe, and of course, a more loyal group of members who's more likely to renew their membership. Right, so you have 56,000 members in the Netherlands, deeply yeah. loyal customer base and audience and people with whom you engage. You know, just doing some back of the envelope math here, I think if you took that market penetration and extrapolated it to the United States and its population size, that would be the equivalent of about 1 million paying members, which is a huge amount. Some of the largest news organizations in the United States have that many subscribers. So you're, you have the success in the Netherlands. Why try to make an American jump? So we want to publish in English because we believe most of the topics we write about uh, aren't limited to country borders. Uh, there are a lot of the most important developments now are global developments, like climate change, for example. So it always felt natural for us to start, it pu to start publishing more in English, to see whether people abroad are interested in what we're writing. And it turns out that they are interested. So the last six months, we had more than a million visitors, from uh, mostly from the U.S. and the U.K., mm. because we started translating some of our stories. Uh, one of our books is now in the UK bestselling list. So we noticed our journalism uh, was all, all also, uh, people were also interested abroad. And um, the thing is, if you see your readers as a possible source of knowledge, then you want as many readers, as, as, as much readers as possible. So we figured if you want to write about global developments, we have uh, people from all over the world should be able to join in and to, to help us with this research. So from day one, we were dreaming about an, an international version, an English version, and the U.S. seems like the most logical home market. We have a, also a, a pretty good network here. And of course, we found Jay Rosen to be your first ambassador. And uh, Professor Jay Rosen has been a big inspiration for us. So when he said he was willing to work with us in the U.S. version, we were, uh, we were game. For those of you who don't know, Jay Rosen is a journalism professor at New York University here, press critic, great thinker. Uh, he came up with a pretty famous formulation in media circles of the people formerly known as the audience. Right. He's, he's a, bit, a big booster of engaging your audience and getting the public to play a more active role in journalism. So what, what exactly is, is Jay doing uh, as part of this effort? So we've learned a lot in the Netherlands, but we have no idea whether all those lessons apply in the U.S., so we started a research project together called the Membership Puzzle Project uh, with his uh, Studio 20 program at NYU uh, and uh, with our uh, Dutch company. Together we founded this project. We have uh, uh, funding from Knight Foundation and the Democracy Fund. 
And uh, we're going to take a year and publicly research how membership models in journalism could work in the U.S. So we're looking for a research director, and he or she will research existing membership models. We'll see if our lessons from the Netherlands apply to the U.S., and we'll do this publicly on membershippuzzle.org so other, other journalists can also benefit from this. So you obviously have Jay helping you out, but I'm sure you guys have done some preliminary research on your own as well. And I'm just kind of curious, when you're sort of evaluating the United States market, obviously you're looking for English readers beyond the United States as well. But if mm-hmm. you're looking specifically at the United States market, obviously it's much bigger, uh, geographically diverse. We have a very competitive news ecosystem here. How does that? How is that similar or different from, from the home market? Well, you summed up the most important differences. Uh, as you said, in the Netherlands, uh, there are only 17 million people. Obviously, uh, there are a lot of more a lot of people living here, and the competition is is there's a lot of good journalism in the U.S. But what we hope to offer is is this group of correspondents working together with an audience, and of course, there is a big issue with trust now in in journalism. So trust in journalism is in a, at a historic low, 32 percent in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And if we could figure out ways to earn back that trust for journalists, we 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 uh, that would that would be great. So that's. And we've noticed in the Netherlands that this model of working together with your readers and working for them without, without advertisers as stakeholders works really well. And, and our, our audiences, uh, they, they trust us. They let us know that they trust us. They work with us on, uh, on, on constructive journalism. So we want to see if that o- could also work in the U.S. Because obviously, if, the, if, if trust is at an historic low, you have to do something about it as journalists. Sure, sure. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons why there's low public trust in the media in the United States. One of them is obviously sort of economic pressures and how that is forced media companies to change the ways that they engage with their readers and produce content, do journalism, uh, more sensational news nowadays than there was decades ago. But a lot of it has to do also with political polarization. And the media, quote unquote, has become this sort of monolithic punching bag for a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle. And that obviously came to the fore with the most recent presidential election Mm -hmm. and is obviously a big issue now. Is that an issue at all? in the Netherlands as well. And I'm just trying to get a, a better sense on how you, you would tackle or try to fit yourself into a deeply politically polarized country in which the media is really used as a cudgel to right. you know pursue your own political arguments. Mm-hmm. Well, I believe the, the press exists to serve citizens and to inform them in the best possible way. And um, there was always this objectivity ideal, there still is in journalism. We don't really believe in that. We think as a journalist, you should be open and honest about why you're writing about specific things and what your opinion about it is and why you want to fix something, for example. So if you can look for common problems that everyone, everybody has, for, in, for, in, for example, in the Netherlands, there's also a divide, political divide. You probably heard about uh, the right-wing party. I heard you had a recent election. Definitely, yeah, and the, and the country is divided. But there are problems everyone is facing. And if you say as a journalist, look, Elder care is a problem in the Netherlands. Uh, we all want this fixed because of we have our parents and grandparents staying at uh, care houses that aren't up to par. Uh, they're basically suffering. How can we fix this together? If you say it like that as a journalist, so you're saying, this is a problem. I want to fix it with you. Let's figure it out together. Uh, if you know anything about this problem, if you have personal experiences, let me know. And as a journalist, you start working for and with your audience. And I think if you do that, you can... You can win over any political uh, uh, divisions because you have this common goal. For example, good care for the other. So I believe, as a journal, if, if you if you're a journalist and you're open about your motives and about the goals and about the solutions you're looking for, 
that uh, you can earn back the trust of the audience. That's mm -hmm. what we learn in the Netherlands. Now let's see if it also applies to the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's been a couple of you know recent examples of pretty major news organizations trying to similarly make uh, a larger footprint in the American market. Uh, you had famously Al Jazeera America, which crashed and burned uh, in a very big way. Then more recently, you had The Guardian, who made a very ill-timed bet on digital advertising. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are different reasons for you know, either of those two organizations and why they failed or are experiencing trouble right now. You know, as, as an outsider coming in, how do you think about sort of just the, the difficulty of, of, you know, establishing a brand in the United States when there is so much competition and also, for lack of a better way to put it, sort of uh, pushback against outsiders nowadays? Right. That, that's obviously it's a big challenge to start to start a new publication in the U.S. We wanted to give it a try because we don't see any other media right now who have such a direct relationship with their audience, and who are dependent on direct revenue. So we're we are dependent on on direct revenue. If we we basically have to find readers who are willing to pay for our services. If they don't, we don't have the right to exist, and we'll we'll fold. So the only way we can grow is by 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 looking for uh, for people who are believe in, in our mission of being an antidote to the daily news grant. If we can figure that out and then steadily grow, that, that would be great. So I think um, that's why we take a year now to research what kind of beats would, would uh, our people want here and, and what kind of journalists would fit the profile of a correspondent. Uh, and that's why, because it's such a big challenge, we start with this research project with MIU first mm. to see how membership model could be introduced to the U.S. Right, gotcha. And and just to clarify for listeners, ideas like this have been tried in fits and starts, maybe small examples here and there in the United States. There was some push for this in the mid-90s, late-90s, called uh, civic journalism, with mm -hmm. which Jay Rosen was, of course, involved in. For your purposes, you know, you mentioned the research project. What are sort of some of the other steps you guys are taking? What's your runway? What's sort of the timeline for, for getting this all going? Yeah, so um, and, uh, we have to look for an editor, obviously, an American editor. Uh, who can help us set up a team of journalists. Uh, and we have to figure out ways how we can present our mission to the U.S. audience. So we figured out a way how we could do that in the, in the Netherlands, but obviously it's a different culture here, a different audience. So that's also what we have to figure out. I'll, uh, my editor and I will move to uh, the U.S. in September to fully focus on this. And um, that's basically the plan we have now. And uh, it's it's funny because... Some people ask us why announce that you're going to try something, but that's in our DNA. Uh, we, our journalists do the same thing. They publicly announce their, the stories and their research projects so people can help them and people can join in. And we've chosen to take the same approach uh, with this, the whole endeavor of the, of the correspondent. Mm -hmm. Ernst Fout. He's the publisher and co-founder of The Correspondent. You can follow their progress at thecorrespondent.com. Ernst, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks. That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. I want to give a special thanks to senior editor Christy Chisholm of CJR and Delacorte fellow Pete Vernon, and also our special guest from across the pond, Ernst Fout. Go to CJR.org, become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review, and please subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your shows. Thank you so much again for kicking with us. We will see you again next week. Mm -hmm.